Remember, we used to talk about the forgotten men and women before the election. Guess what? They're not forgotten. The white working class, working people. This is a white working class path to the presidency. No, they're not forgotten anymore, folks. In fact, they're trying to figure you out. What Trump did uh, very effectively is tap the angst and the anger and the hurt and the pain. I mean, I'm mad. I've been mad. I'm one of the angry, you know, voters that they've been discussing for the last year. And yes, by the way, they are trying to take away our history and our heritage. You see that. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Heather, last week we saw and reacted to the awful events in Charlottesville, Virginia, and President Trump's deeply, deeply troubling responses. In some ways, I think we are still feeling the fires of Charlottesville, but we're also seeing the shadow. It's illuminated a landscape of race in America. That's, hell, it's always been there. But now it seems like we can see it again with heightened clarity. This week, we take a step back and we ask, how did we get here? We want to put Trump's comments and this neo-Nazi rally in a greater American context. And I, I say that with a, with a heavy heart. <laughs> there is an American context here. The context of Trump's rhetoric, in fact, over the last few years. The context of his administration's policy goals. And of course, the context of race and politics in this country. Race on a country built uh, on top of what many have called the original sin of slavery. Why are white nationalists now marching in the streets? What is Trump's political calculus when he seemingly caters to these people. How is it possible that a new ABC Washington Post poll states that one in 10 Americans now say it is acceptable to hold neo-Nazi views? Are we suddenly at a precipice or are we just seeing now with clarity the fault lines that lie? at the foundation of this country. Heather, how did we get here? Well, we've been getting here for a long time. This kind of language, the idea that there are good Americans who are defined silently as white, hardworking taxpayers who have to stand against people of color, women, minorities, unionized labor, people who are somehow not good Americans, was the backbone of people as far back as Barry Goldwater in 1960 and then re when he ran in 1964, picking up not only Arizona but five deep southern states. Of course, Nixon picked it up with his not only his southern strategy but also the idea of the silent majority and his turning on women and on labor unions. And then, of course, you can take that through Reagan, through um, H. Uh, George H.W. Bush, through George W. Bush, and now finally to what that has created, and that's Trump. But the question to me is – 
you know, are we at a precipice because of the neo-Nazis? The neo-Nazis are an outgrowth, I think, of this generation of this deeply coded, nasty, vile language. But I think we're at a tipping point, and it's a tipping point I find extraordinarily exciting. And that is the tipping point of Charlottesville on August 12th and of Donald Trump's initial reaction to that, the the horrific uh, speech he gave. Uh I think it was on the 15th of August. And what that was a turning point for, I thought, was the Americans pushing back and saying, you know, this coded language, we lived with it for all these generations, and now we're not going to live with it any longer. Charlottesville and what the president said after that, it was no longer a question of are you in the, on the side of the white working class or on the side of whatever. It was do you believe that white people are better than anybody else or not? And most Americans are stepping up and saying, no, that's not the world we want to live in. Yeah, posing the question may have finally uh, summoned an answer from a country that often does sleep. Stop. So- Our president sided with neo-Nazis. Do, do, do we have to say anything more than that? I mean, that's an extreme, you know, we're trying to, t- we're t- kind of yeah, talking about that yeah. like it's normal. Yeah, yeah. It is not normal. It is not okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm freaking out. Yeah, you are freaking out. And <laughs> but no, no, I, we can look, carry and, on. And no, I will, I will in fact carry on by going right to Carol. Carol Anderson. This is our guest for this week. She's a professor of African-American studies at Emory University, the author of the book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of our racial divide. Carol, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Look, Carol, we are freaking out over Charlottesville, President Trump's comments. And there we pick up the New York Times, the uh, Week in Review, right there in the front, is an extraordinary story where you make the case that President Trump is already enacting a policy agenda that targets minorities and is celebrated by white nationalists. Carol, talk to us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking and I'm seeing a a regime that is on one hand like the Keystone Cops. It can't get out of its way. It's rumbling, bumbling, stumbling, absolutely inadequate on every measure. I call them the the incompetent fascists, but keep going. (laughs) There you go. I mean, you'd rather incompetent than competent, but continue. Oh, my gosh. Except... (laughs) Except they have been brutally efficient in one realm. And in that realm, which is to enact policies that subjugate minority communities, they have been so good. So, yeah, they came stumbling kind of out the box with the Muslim travel ban. But they kept at it until they got some portion of it. Think about how quickly they have used via the Department of Homeland Security the ICE raids that ostensibly are going after all of these hardcore criminals and these these gangs like MS-15, except what they're going after are people who have been here for years, who have worked hard in this country for years, whose children are American citizens, and they're deporting them. They're breaking up these families. Then you think about how Trump was in Long Island, I believe it was, where he's giving the speech before law enforcement officers. And he begins to talk about, hey, don't be so nice on these guys. And when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in rough. 
I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand over. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody, don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay? So what is he saying? Knock their heads up against a car and, and create skull damage? What? Skull fractures? Or, or throw them in a, what he called a paddy wagon, like Freddie Gray? who ended up with his neck broken because he got a rough ride by the Baltimore PD? I mean, so you have the president of the United States giving sanction, and he, and he was very clear, these thugs, which is, again, part of that coded language, part of those dog whistles that are barely dog whistles, that resonate so profoundly with that base of white resentment. So I have a question for you on that, Carol. You talked about the dog whistles, and you've also written about how white supremacists have very successfully used the language of democracy and freedom to undermine black success. Do you want to walk us through that? Oh, absolutely. And I'll I'll take something that's right now in our face, voter suppression. So with voter suppression, what you hear is this language of we must protect the integrity of the ballot box. We must protect the integrity of our democracy from voter fraud. When Trump was on the campaign trail, whenever he talked about this election is rigged, think about that, the democracy is rigged, but then he pointed to Philadelphia, St. Louis, Chicago. He didn't point to Beautifulville, South Dakota, right? He specifically pointed to these major urban areas, again, coded language, barely coded, signifying black, black fraud, black criminal, black threat to democracy. And so now we have the Election Integrity Commission, headed by Chris Kobach and Mike Pence, staffed on the Republican side with a series of the mo- it's like a, a pantheon of voter suppressors. And they say that there's this massive voter fraud and they're out here to protect the integrity of democracy. But when you look at what they do, what it actually does, despite all of the language around it, is it targets minorities. You've got over a 50% kill rate for all intents and purposes targeted at African-Americans who get purged off the list. About 27% for Asians, I believe, and about 17% or so for Hispanics. However, for whites, they are underrepresented on the purge list. But it's all cloaked in the language of protecting democracy. This sort of a creation of scapegoats that was a, an act of uh, a kind of dark innovation on the part of the Republicans here to say, OK, I understand you're you're aggrieved that many people are doing well in America and you feel left behind, that somehow you're not being represented by those in power. All of those grievances that we know are fairly widespread. But here's whose fault it is. It's the fault of these folks. You may have not been thinking so much about them, but you all do now. It's the immigrants. It's the blacks. It's the folks who are taking your slots at college. And and I just think that, you know, there is uh, almost like a, a white resentment greatest hits 
And so you begin to pull out. Um, okay, is that a, is that top forty now? <laughs> Casey Kasem, That's right? right. It's so. like a, it's rising with a bullet. <laughs> Number four, white resentment, greatest hits. And so you have things like, um, okay, welfare. Okay, law and order, crime. We've got to get tough on these thugs. Um, you have affirmative action. And they just keep playing those hits over and over oh, and that's over good. again. I want to play a clip for you of Charles Murray, the controversial conservative political scientist. You remember him from the 1990s. He wrote that book, The Bell Curve, which basically states that African-Americans are genetically inferior to whites. Uh, well, he speaks on the PBS NewsHour about Trumpism uh, during the 2016 campaign. What is Trumpism? Trumpism is the expression by the white working class of a lot of legitimate grievances that it has with the ruling class. Everything from the cultural disdain that the ruling class holds the working class in to the loss of all kinds of manufacturing jobs, the importation of low-skilled labor, all the ways in which, uh, if you're a member of the working class, you have, over the last 30, 40 years, been screwed. Is there anything, anything at all that Murray says here or anywhere that you think is legitimate in terms of grievances of whites in America? This, the core of white resentment. What about this cultural disdain on firm ground there? Okay. See, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Look, I gave I, you every opportunity I, here. <laughs> You really I, did. I even, and I gave you that long dissertation yes. answer. No, no, no. Yeah, no. The pause, <laughs> so, though, was important. So let me explain. So first, he defines working class as white. Notice that he's talking about, mm. you know, in the working class, you know, they've lost their manufacturing jobs. and So whites are the only ones who lost their manufacturing jobs. Whites are the only working class. And so already you get an argument that is coded white that doesn't withstand even the barest amount of scrutiny. Well, let me jump in here, though. It, it does seem to me to be legitimate to say, and it is if you look at the statistics, that since 1980, the position of um, of all races, but especially Latina and um, Indian American um, and African Americans and, and immigrants and brown people has all uh, fallen dramatically since 1980, but also so has the white male uh, working class without uh, college education. So the idea that that they're screwed, have been screwed by neoliberalism, I think is a legitimate one, is it not? It's legitimate, but what's not legitimate is then where the anger is placed. That's fair. So why is it? So why I, I I completely agree with you on that. So so why do you think it is placed the way it is? I would say that where the grievance comes from is this sense that they're losing status in this society. Now the problem again is is that we have a history. I love that term. We have a history. <laughs> of using race and racism and white supremacy, when they talk about playing the race card, in order to divert whites' attention from the, the source of their grievance. So think about during the populist moment in the 1890s. 
And here, remember the Farmers Alliance, here where you had poor black farmers and poor white farmers who are beginning to work together in co-ops because they are getting screwed, USDA royal screwed by the big banks, by the big railroads, by Wall Street. They're getting just rolled over and they decide to work together to fight back. The co-ops gave them some sense of economic stability, economic wherewithal, and they were also beginning to vote in politicians, officials who understood their anger, their grievances, their needs. They were so successful in the 1890s that a lot of Republicans didn't even bother to run in that in that election because they took over so many state legislatures. Exactly. Exactly. And so then, so the Republicans are looking up and they're having a Scooby-Doo moment. Oh, oh, Shaggy. (laughs) And the Democrats are looking up going, I don't know. And so what they decide to do is to, in fact, play the race card with poor white saying, you know, I know you're poor, but you know what? You're white. And that gives you something that black person will never have. The power of being white. And isn't it more important to be white? And they're using terms like the more you're going to end up with mongrelization, you're going to end up having that big black brute marrying your daughter. So what so what you are arguing in in effect is that this language really is part rooted in our history, but that it's being deployed by political elites to stay in power in order to to divide the working classes, essentially. Is that right? Yes. Yes, and we and we see it. We see it. The GOP is somewhere between 89 to 92% white. And so with that limited demographic base, then it is playing to that base. You know, one of the things that's fun about what you and I do, Carol, is that we have so many stories that people don't know. And one of the ones I think that would be great if you would help us with is the story of what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921 and made Tulsa, Oklahoma have the dubious distinction of being the first American city to be bombed from the air. Yes, Lord, yes. So Tulsa. There was, in Tulsa, was an area called Black Wall Street. The black population in Tulsa, and this is 1921, uh, the black population in Tulsa was thriving. They embodied this notion of the American dream. You had businessmen, you had dentists, you had physicians. They had all of the respectability markers. And white Tulsa was poor. And white Tulsa looked at black Tulsa with all of that wealth and prosperity and education and resented black Tulsa eight ways to Sunday resented. And one young man was delivering a message in a downtown building and he was in an elevator. And the young white woman was in the elevator, and somehow he bumped her, he stepped on her toe. There was some movement between the first and the third floor. She hollered rape. When the black leadership learned that the young man had been arrested, they came down to the police station because they were afraid of a lynching. They left, you know, after they got assurances, well, we're going to do the best we can to protect him, you know, but the lynch mob is forming outside. We're going to do the best we can to protect him. No. 
oh my God, this is just, I mean, it's just horrible. Whites were then deputized to basically round up African-Americans. They swooped into the black neighborhood in Tulsa, whites did, um, began shooting and burning African-Americans out of their homes, out of their businesses, marching them almost like in a death march into these camps. Then somebody got a plane and started dropping bombs on Black Wall Street, blowing up the, the community, that thriving Black community, just leveled. The pictures are absolutely horrific when you look at that devastation. That was the greatest act of domestic terrorism before 9-11. Several hundred African-Americans killed and several dozen whites, as I recall, right? Yes, yes. Tulsa, Black Tulsa never recovered, never recovered from that. Are you you surprised that, well, in this calculus, that in some ways Obama would almost by necessity have created— A Trump, because that's the thinking always adds to that word backlash. I mean, is this always the way it must be? Must there always be a pushback that's every bit as forceful as the step forward? You know, and this is this is where I'm going to keep hope alive. Uh, No, it doesn't have to be. And I think one of the things that is happening in this moment right now, and Heather really mentioned it, I mean, laid it out is that people are having a full-blown discussion about what democracy is, what kind of nation they really want to live in. And I think having that conversation and people actively working for that kind of democracy. And once this regime is over, we have to sustain that conversation. That's the key. We can't go, whoo, we have overcome. It is so good. Yeah. Because the rudiments of that anger and that hatred are still there in our society because they've been there for so long. They were there at the creation. And so we have to be, what is it? The, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. We have to be eternally vigilant, eternally working for this inclusive, vibrant democracy. That's what we're fighting for. Carol Anderson, author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Ron and Heather. I had a wonderful time. Well, be well. Thanks, Carol. You too. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stand by. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Heather, you know, we've looked at the politics of white working class resentment in the Trump administration. Um, g- grab something from the, the historical record. What does this remind you of? I know there are many uh, examples of white resentment. Which one echoes most strongly for you now? So listen, I have to go right to where this started. I mean, we have the American history of slavery, and that's got its own issues that we should talk about. But this linkage right here that we are living with today comes from a specific moment in American history, and that is the moment at the end of the Civil War. Because what happens during the Civil War is the Republican Party creates a new national government that is activist, and for the first time in American history, we have national taxation. 
It's the Republicans who invent the IRS. It's the Republicans who invent national taxation. And everybody is paying taxes. And in 1865, they pass a law that comes to be known as the Freedmen's Bureau Act. And what it does is it protects the civil rights of African Americans. And this is a very popular government, by the way. It's a very popular government. But when Andrew Johnson becomes president after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. He's not a Republican. He's a Democrat. He's a Southern Democrat. And he has no interest either in keeping the Republicans in power or in African-American rights. So he goes in front of the people and he says, listen, if you continue down this road, what you've got is taxes raised from white, hardworking Americans, American men, hardworking white American men, and those taxes are being used to give federal aid to lazy ex-slaves. And that equation that an activist government that protects the rights of all Americans to participate in American society is a redistribution of wealth comes straight from Andrew Johnson, and we have lived with it ever since. And you see it again and again and again. So after the Civil War, initially people who, white Democrats especially, who said they didn't want black people to participate in the government on racial grounds, by 1871, they're not saying they care about race, even though they obviously do. They say, we don't want our tax dollars to be going to African Americans. And it's fascinating to me because we are living with this right up to when Donald Trump spoke in Arizona, in Phoenix on Tuesday night. So the Democrats have no ideas, no policy, no vision for the country other than total socialism and maybe, frankly, a step beyond socialism from what I'm seeing. Under their plan for America, your taxes will double or triple, your services will diminish, and your borders will be left wide open for everybody to come in and enjoy our country. Well, I will, I will point out here, too, that the people who are talking this way, who are talking about the use of their tax dollars, those are not poor whites who are ever saying that. That never comes directly from them first. It comes from elite leaders who are, are aware that they don't command, command a majority any longer. Uh, Ronald Reagan really, well, I suppose revived. He didn't create it, but he revived this conversation powerfully during the Jimmy Carter years. In 1976, he gives his first or one of his first addresses for what we now call the welfare queen rhetoric. Uh, let's listen to this. In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, social security, veterans benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare. Her tax-free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a year. Well, you know, but what's cool about this in terms of coded language is he never actually says she's African-American. Later on, he says she's from the South Side, which is how he ties that in. Symbolic speech again yes. and again and again. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, we all know what I'm talking about. And I'm not going to say it. You, were, you, were, you knew not to speak these words. Well, now Reagan's strategist, Lee Atwater, was the one who really articulated this. He says, we can't use that language anymore. Instead, we're going to talk about busing and taxes. You know, 
Willie Atwater was a real innovator again uh, on the Republican side. He he was the guy who innovated what's often called the push poll. Now the push poll is where um, some sort of apparatchik, some sort of uh, volunteer gets on the phone and acts like a pollster and calls up a likely voter and says, would it change your view of so-and-so if you knew? That, that's actually not a statement that's problematically false. I'm not saying it's true. If you knew this, would it then change? Like, give me an example. <clears throat> well, they did it first with a guy named Tom Turnipseed who was running for Congress. Oh, come on. Is that really his I name? Swear to, I swear to God. Tom, Tom Turnipseed. Tom Turnipseed. He's running for Congress in South Carolina. And that order... Uh, had uh, folks call up likely voters, and I think it was Charleston, to say, uh, would it change your view of Tom Turnipseed if you knew that he was on the board of the NAACP? No, he wasn't on the board of the NAACP. But boy, this was so incredibly effective. And the push-pull grew in usage right up to a key moment, which I might mention, with John McCain and George W. Bush in, again, the South Carolina showdown of 2000. Remember, McCain slaughters Bush in the New Hampshire primary, the whole Bush juggernaut, the wheels are off the bus, but they're going to have a showdown in South Carolina. And the key moment, and Carl Rove, Dick Cheney were all involved in this. They called up voters with just the most diabolical push-pull offering, and it was this. The McCains, Cindy and John McCain, had adopted a young girl, Bridget, from Calcutta. They didn't want to single her out in any public way to say she's adopted. Uh, but, you know, she often appeared with the rest of the toe-headed McCain children on stages here and there. A picture of that was out and about. So while that photograph is being passed out to likely voters in South Carolina, the push pollster asks, would it change your view of Senator McCain if you knew he sired a child with a black prostitute? Slightly change, not change, significantly change? That is despicable. Utterly. I mean, what could be worse? What could be worse? Yeah, and here the McCains do something admirable. They adopt this young girl from an orphanage in Calcutta. Mother Teresa was involved. And they also do an admirable thing bespeaking integrity to not retail this politically, to not say we're good people because we did this thing that you may not do. And by virtue of all those things, it left them vulnerable to this most horrific racist attack. Now, here we are. You know, this is 2000. We're talking 17 years later where the volume of the attacks, I mean, in these days, it's not with this brilliant, awful subtlety of would it change your view if. They're going right at it. Well, see, this is one of the reasons I think it's we're in, a, we're in a, a good moment and a good moment of change because it isn't subtle. Now it's absolutely on the table and people are suddenly going, wait a minute. You know, this I'm not being played here. I see it. There are people who are in charge of our government right now who are arguing that this country belongs to white men. It's right out here for everyone to see. And when that happens, it does call upon some deeper capacity in people to say, no, 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 that's, no, that's not me. I mean, maybe it was a part of me that I didn't want to see in daylight. But now, my God, it's staring me right in the face. And I now know what I'm not. Maybe we are at a moment like that now. I think time will tell over the months to come and maybe years. But there's no doubt that the conversation on race going way, way back has changed 
It may be the same conversation we've always been involved in, but certainly it has changed in its nature and may be changed in how we are going to see it day-to-day as individuals. Heather, a delight as always. Nice to chat with you, Ron. I'm Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On. We'll see you next time. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.